Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders for our church. This morning, we are going to be in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, which will not be shown up on the screen this morning. So now's your chance to get out your Bibles. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 516. I serve with a campus ministry organization called Disciple Makers. And this, this past semester, some colleagues of mine conducted a survey at another college campus. It wasn't here at Penn State. But they were asking students some critical questions about human existence. The question, where did we all come from, yielded such answers as evolution and random chance. No surprises there. The question, what is wrong with the world, yielded such answers as people are selfish and people aren't green toward the environment and they are creating problems. The most surprising answers from this survey came with the third question, which was, how can we fix what's wrong with the world? Most students answered simply, we can't, or there's no way to fix it. So then my colleagues asked, So in light of that, how do you live a good life? What is the good life? And in light of their hopelessness to fix what's wrong in the world, students said that all you can do is whatever makes you happy. One guy said he hopes to become wealthy enough to travel the world because then he'll really be happy. My heart breaks for this generation that perceives so much that is wrong with the world, but who holds no hope for ever fixing it. Like these college students, are you searching for transcendent answers to life's big questions? And have you grown worn out from ever finding the answers? We're drawing closer to the end of our series in the book of Proverbs, this ancient book of wisdom in the middle of the Bible. And over the the last few sermons, we're going to be looking at the longer poems in the final two chapters of the book. So this morning we're in chapter 30 on page 516 of the church Bibles. And In the first six verses of this chapter, I would like to show you this morning that there is hope. You can find heaven's wisdom on earth, but only if you know where to look. That's where we're heading this morning. You can find heaven's wisdom on earth, but only if you know where to look. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Our Father, please 
open our eyes and our hearts that we might be honest with ourselves, with one another, about whatever weariness and hopelessness we face in finding answers to our big questions. And I pray that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one who became for us wisdom from God, the one who is our righteousness and our redemption. And bless our time together in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 6, let me read it. The words of Agur, son of Jokeh, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. This is God's word to us this morning. This brief poem divides into three stanzas. First, in verses 1 to 3, it teaches that you and I need wisdom. And then in verse 4, it teaches that wisdom is in heaven. And finally, we'll see in verses 5 and 6 that wisdom has come to earth. So you can now find heaven's wisdom on earth if you look in the right place. First, let's talk about the fact that you need wisdom. Point number one, you need wisdom. This chapter records, as verse 1 says, the words of Agur, the son of Jokeh. We know nothing about this man. I'm sorry. We know his name, and we know his father's name, and we know his words that are recorded for us in this chapter. But the name Agur shows up nowhere else in the Bible, and as far as I understand, it shows up nowhere else in other ancient literature. But the name Agur is likely not a Hebrew name, and for that reason, some scholars think he may not have even been an Israelite. But we can't be certain. This is everything we know about him right here in verse 1. But what we do know... One further thing we know about him from the end of verse 1 is that he's pretty weary. He, he declares his weariness to God two times in verse 1. And then he tacks on, after the second one, the fact that he's also worn out. 
Now, if you happen to be looking at a different translation of the Bible, other than the English standard version that we typically use, you might actually see more names here in verse 1. That the man declares to Ithiel and to Ukal. And again, if their names, we're not sure who these people might be. We're not even sure whether they are people at all. I think the ESV translation does us a service by translating those names as weary and worn out. Because that's what they mean. So whether Agor himself is weary and worn out, or whether he's speaking to a couple of friends who are weary and worn out, regardless, the big question is... Why? Why is he weary and worn out? In verses 2 and 3, he gives two reasons. The first reason is in verse 2, which is because he is stupider than any man. Isn't that a great motivational verse in the Bible? In other words, what he's saying is that as he lives his life and he gazes out upon the mass of humanity, he can always find other people who are smarter and wiser than he is. So perhaps he's not the most powerful emperor or the most sought-after counselor or the most in-demand talking head for the gurus of the ancient world. He feels that he is too stupid to be a man. Now, I don't know about you, but I can totally relate to this feeling. As it describes much of my life. And I'm not just saying that. I'll give you some examples. I love spending time with my brother John Walker sitting right over here, this great guy. We spend time regularly, talk about life and the Lord. But, you know, when I'm with him, it's so annoying because whenever the conversation turns... Yeah, what are you whispering to your wife right now? I want to know this. Whenever the conversation turns... You know, it could turn to his career of, of electrical lighting, but it doesn't even have to go there. We could go to anything hands-on, such as thermostats or flooring or camping, all things that have come up in conversation in recent months. And when the conversation goes to any of these topics, I cannot keep up with him. Now, I'll give you another example. My Achilles heel in my life is home maintenance. So it's always a humbling experience to be around my brother, Slava Dmitriev, who's not here this morning, so I can't embarrass him publicly. (laughs) Slava can do anything, absolutely anything, to or for a building with excellence. And I'm so grateful that I can ask him for help and advice, but I have not the understanding of this man. Now, am I just saying this? What about the Bible, Mr. Kroll? Certainly that is a subject of which you are not stupid. And I am grateful for the Lord's help and wisdom that he's given me with respect to the Bible. But even in that realm, I found it so crucial for my professional development to attend a certain annual training workshop for preachers. I go every year because 
when I go to these workshops, I just feel stupid at first. We'll study a book of the Bible together with all these preachers at this workshop, and I'll submit some of my own work for critique, and I'll get feedback on everything I did wrong. And I see other men from other parts of the country or other parts of the state who seem to have so much more proficiency at this craft than I do. You see, it doesn't matter what topic we're talking about. There is always someone in the world out there who will make me feel stupid. I'm not saying these things just to beat myself up or to use this podium as some sort of personal therapy. No, I'm saying these things only so I can ask this question. Can you relate to Agur? Can you relate to me? Have you ever considered stenciling Proverbs 30 verse 2 on the wall of your bathroom so you can reflect on it during your times of quiet meditation? Because that's probably the best place for it. You don't want people to see it in your living room. I have considered it. Maybe that makes me too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. No matter how much you succeed in one area, you will always be able to find someone who does it better than you do. Someone who knows more about it than you do. And for many people, that's a recipe for burnout. You know, if I can't be the best at this thing, then why should I even bother trying? Better not to try than to try and have to fail. Some people take that philosophy because they're so weary and worn out from being stupid. Isn't that great, by the way, that the Bible uses the word stupid? I just love that. This doesn't change the fact that you and I need wisdom. It is a wearying fact of human existence that you cannot be the fastest or the prettiest or the smartest person alive. There will always be people who make you feel inferior in some way, and that is exhausting. But that's only the first cause of Agur's weariness, that he's so stupid. The second cause of his weariness is in verse 3, where he now compares himself not to the rest of humanity, but to God himself. Agur is weary because he has not learned wisdom, and in particular, he does not have knowledge of the Holy One. You see, there are some things that God knows that we may never know no matter how hard we try. I mean, how far is it really to the edge of the universe? And how much smaller really do we have to go to find the smallest indivisible building blocks of matter? And why really... Would Christ ever choose me to be his precious child? You know, there are some things we may never know the answers to. And the longer Agur lives his life, the more he recognizes his need 
for wisdom. He is not as wise as many humans, and he'll never grasp the extent of the wisdom of God. And this fact wearies him. He's not indifferent toward it. He can't just sit back and suck it up and and go back to playing Fortnite. He knows that he needs guidance and counsel and wisdom. And he's worn out from looking for it and failing to find it. Do you feel similarly worn out? Perhaps you're worn out by the failure of the self-help industry to deliver on what it promises. Or maybe you're worn out by the halls of academia and the race to gain a voice, to get published, to acquire more coveted lecture engagements. Maybe you're worn out by the never-ending news cycle and the steady stream of experts claiming to offer wisdom on the next crisis, the next tragedy, the next election. You need wisdom. And I need wisdom. And that is wearying. These are bare facts of our existence. And these facts lead Agur to ask a series of questions in the second stanza. Questions that flow from the knowledge that point number two, wisdom is in heaven. In verse four, Agur asks Five questions in rapid succession that all get at the same thing. Who's gone to heaven and come back? Who can hold the wind? Who can adorn himself with oceans? Who made everything that we can see? What is his name? And what is his son's name? You see, having grown weary from his great need for wisdom in verses 1 to 3, Agur turns to the only place where he can find the very wisdom he needs. And that place is heaven. He needs access to the creator of all things. He needs to consult the God who controls all things by the word of his power. And Agur wishes for access into the vaults of heaven's bank so he can withdraw some wisdom assets into his own account. In this way, Agur is living out his own version of the human affinity for transcendent answers. Answers to the big questions of life. In this very same way that our culture for generations has been caught up in questions of where did we come from and why are we here? So too, Agur wants to understand his purpose and the meaning of human existence. People today might ask, what is my purpose? And then go hike the Appalachian Trail in search for an answer. Back then... Agur's solution was that he wanted to know the name of the true God and the name of his son. And that little detail there at the end of verse 4 about his son is really important. Because God had 
a son, has a son, and he had a son even back then. Did you know that in the book of Exodus, God calls the nation of Israel his son? He tells Moses to command Pharaoh to let my son go that he may serve me in the wilderness. And because of Pharaoh's refusal to let God's son, the people of Israel, go, God went after Pharaoh's son and all the sons of Egypt on the night of Passover when they died. And later in history, in the book of 2 Samuel, the son of God becomes more than just the nation as a whole. It becomes focused and localized on the king of Israel. God promises King David that his son will rule forever. And God declares that he, David, your son, will be a son to me. He will be the son of God and I will be a father to him. In Psalm 2, God speaks directly to the king of Israel and he says, You are my son. So the fact that Agur ends verse 4 here with the confidence that surely you know his name and his son's name. And the fact that Solomon, or some later king of Israel, decided to include Agur's poems in this collection of poetry that we call the book of Proverbs, these facts lead us to conclude that Agur recognized the special status of Israel and of Israel's king. The flow of Agur's argument in this poem is simply this. I desperately need wisdom to the point that I'm exhausted by the need. But the wisdom I need is in heaven. How can I possibly gain access to it there? Well, I've heard of a group of people whose king has backstage access to the creator God. Please tell me who they are. You see, Agur is the spiritual ancestor to the rock band U2 because he can sing right along with them. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Thank you. Some of you are too young to remember that one. There is bad news here for our generation. The bad news is that the answers we seek to the questions we ask will never be found by our typical methods of inquiry. I mean, do you really think you can solve the mysteries of the universe with a microscope or even with a telescope? You can't just phone a friend or post something that goes viral. And get the answers to these kinds of questions. We desperately need wisdom. And we need wisdom to help us unite despite increasing polarization. We need wisdom to navigate the minefield of identity politics. We need wisdom to help us live life and keep our sanity in a world going matter and matter. 
so weary and worn out. And even our own poets are captivated by the search for such wisdom. Mary Oliver, in her poem, The Summer Day, begins, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? And then after, in this poem, she describes her delightful romp with a grasshopper in a field. She concludes the poem with a series of questions that include, Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Such poems demonstrate the search for transcendent answers. And yet, the wisdom we need for such questions resides in heaven. Our methods of inquiry will never find the answers. What we most need to answer our deepest questions is access to the Creator God. We need access to the one who speaks galaxies into existence and the one who can never be canceled by internet mobs. So how can we access him? How do we get ourselves to heaven? How do we connect with not only the God of heaven, but also his representative on earth? In other words, what is his name and what is his son's name? The bad news is that we can't find it our way. But the good news is point number three, that wisdom has come to earth. Wisdom has come to earth. Agur's weariness and his questions lead him to conclude in verse five that God's word can be trusted. In fact, look closely at how the two lines of verse five line up. Because every word of God proves true, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. What Agur is saying is that to rest in the truth of God's word is to take refuge in God himself. That's why verse 6 pronounces a curse on anyone who would dare to add to God's words. God will rebuke them and they will be shown to be liars. What he's getting at is that our need for transcendent wisdom can lead us to do some pretty dumb things sometimes. But those dumb things never have a good result. For example, we want to know what is the purpose of our existence. And so we begin to think that we can create, just go ahead and create our own purpose. Or we think that our purposes can be found deep within by being true to ourselves. And what happens when we do that? Well, we actually lose our grip on reality. And we get what we're facing today. Where the facts of biology are seen as inconveniences where more and more states are passing laws allowing schools to provide gender transition therapy to students without talking to parents, where women's athletics are now dominated by biological men. 
And the rates of depression in young people are higher than ever. And the word of God comes along rebuking us and calling us all out as liars. Or here's another example. Someone might work and work and work from a belief that the good life, the goal of life, here's my transcendent question, what's my goal of life? Well, it's to make piles of money and find security. And such a person has little experience of friendship or of love in the home. This person misses his child's first steps or their first solo trip on a bicycle. Or maybe the person has even refused to have any children because children are just going to interfere with the career. Work is so demanding that there's little time left for stories and for laughter. But the search for wisdom and success in business has led this person to add to God's words and then even to lie to himself about what makes for the good life. So friends, please understand this morning that the meaning of life and the mysteries of the universe are available to you. Do you recognize your need for wisdom from outside yourself? You'll never live up to even human wisdom if all you do is try to create your own reality. We all need wisdom. And wisdom is in heaven. But you can find heaven's wisdom on earth. You can find it in the word of God, as he says in verse 5, and in the son of God, as he says in verse 4. When you are most weary of your need for wisdom, please understand that heaven's wisdom has come to earth. Yes, I am saying that something supernatural happens when you open this book. Especially when you trust what you find here. And you take refuge in the God who is revealed here. Some people have dared to say that to focus too much on the Bible is actually to miss out on a direct connection to God. But this book itself says that you have no refuge in God unless you pay very close attention to what this book says. Political opinions keep changing. The scientific consensus keeps changing. The acceptability of human behaviors keeps changing. But God's word never changes. It speaks old truth into new situations, lighting our paths like a beacon in the night. I love it when a brother or sister in Christ who has suffered deeply shares with me a verse or a passage of scripture that anchored their hope for them through their trial. You see, it doesn't take superhuman heroics to maintain your equilibrium when you're exhausted and when life gets tough. All it takes is simple good sense to know where to find refuge. And the more hope, the more I see others finding such refuge in the Lord through his word, the more hope it gives me that I too 
can find strength and security and refuge in God's word. And what is the most important thing that God's word does for us? Well, it introduces us to God's son. It takes us by the hand and it leads us to the king of Israel. The representative of God who walked the earth. The final king of Israel was not David or Solomon who wrote the Proverbs, not Hezekiah who chapter 25 says he collected more Proverbs. No, it was Jesus Christ. Jesus was born king of the Jews. And he is called the wisdom of God who was sent by the Father from heaven to earth so he might show us the Father. And the really wild thing is that Jesus' own people treated him as though he were a fool. They arrested him. They had him beaten and executed. The Romans hung him on a tree like a traitor or a murderer, exposing his nakedness and holding him up to public ridicule. But on that cross where Jesus hung, The wisdom of God was made available to the world in a rather explosive manner. The Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, he says that the world sought God, but could not know him through its own wisdom. It requires the perceived foolishness of Christ crucified hanging on a tree to find the power and wisdom of God. The wisdom of God came from heaven to earth and he died so we could all see God's wisdom. And that wisdom is now available to you and to me. He is now available to you and to me if you only know where to look. Look in this book to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both the true Son of God and the true Word of God who came from heaven to earth. The one who made everything and who now gives life to all who ask him. What's his name? Jesus. Trust him today and find a refuge that can never be assailed. A security that can never be hacked or stolen. You can't, excuse me, you can find wisdom... Excuse me. You can find heaven's wisdom on earth, but only if you know who to look at.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our wisdom and your power. Help us to trust him and to find in him the answers to all of our biggest questions. May we trust him and may we be diligent, even in our weariness, to study your word that we might meet with you. Help us to endure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.